of journalism has been profoundly affected by changes in technology over the last 20 years, from working practices of news gathering and dissemination to challenges in funding and advertising in the face of digitisation, the place of journalism in society has dramatically changed. Globalisation has significantly altered the landscape of new media and we see the ongoing closure of local newspapers as people's experience of life shifts from the geographies of place to networks of national and indeed transnational culture via online media. Coincidentally, there has been a growing crisis in what we might describe as the traditional authority of the journalist and their role in the public sphere of free and informed debate. Such changes in the media ecology warrant careful scrutiny as the vital role of local and national news media comes to the fore at such times as we now enter. To this end, in today's podcast, I'll be talking to Professor Henrik Ernebling, from the Department of Media and Communication Studies here in Karlstad. Hello and welcome. My name is John Lynch, Associate Professor in Film and Media at Karlstad University of Sweden. My guest today has published nearly 50 articles in areas such as European journalism, media and democracy in Central and Eastern Europe, comparative media history and transmedia entertainment. His most recent book is Newsworkers, a Comparative European Perspective, and he is currently the Editor-in-Chief of the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Journalism Studies. Welcome, Henrik. Thank you, John. I think it was uh, Arthur Miller who said, a good newspaper is a a nation talking to itself. Um, Over the last 25 years, what would you say are the biggest changes to the practice of journalism? Ooh... uh over the course of the past 25 years. Well, I mean, the obvious big change is that there's like less people doing work. Like most countries in the Western world has seen a quite a large decrease in the journalist population because newspapers and to a lesser extent broadcasting has been cutting staff. Um, and I think that is really something that impacts a lot of other practices um, for example journalists today have to routinely produce content for multiple platforms um, if you look at the way journalism study programs were were structured they were usually structured so that you like picked a, a kind of a media or platform specialization that you sort of specialize to becoming like a a newspaper journalist, a magazine journalist, broadcast, and then there were even differences between radio and TV. And then, you know, like maybe two decades ago, they also started to have like small specializations in online. <laughs> um, but, uh, and even though some of these like specializations, they exist, particularly in the US, uh, but to reflect this, like journalism education has become much more integrated now. Like you, you really, it it's really difficult to like be just like a broadcast journalist or a newspaper journalist. So, so all journalists today have to sort of know a little bit about producing across all platforms uh, much more. So that's also like a big, a big change, which is sort of due to 
a combination of both these sort of structural changes with newsroom cuts, but also the, the technological developments, of course. So those are just some like introductory points on that. So the the sort of the deli- the, the, the mode of delivery of such of information has mm-hmm. has changed in that sense, but has the substance of the nature of journalistic inquiry and the um, the, the 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 matter of what they do in any way changed oh, yeah. in that regard? Yeah. Well, uh, that's interesting. As as you know, I've done a lot of like comparative work on how journalists work in in different countries. Um, and what we can see from that is that the, the the actual practice of journalism, as you say, the substance of what you do, that's actually very similar across n- national, uh, across country lines. Uh, and I think this the same holds true a little bit in the new sort of changed digital environment uh, that depending on how you look at it like the substance of what you do hasn't changed like that much the sort of the fundamentals of the job particularly news journalism is still the same like you you need to like find news and then you need to like rework or you need to find events find information rework them into news like this particular genre and like deliver it to audiences so a lot of what has changed is of course the delivery to audiences right that we like you know we we get our news via our smartphone today and at any time not just at the particularly scheduled time um but whereas like the substance of what journalists do hasn't changed that much if we're talking about sort of changing working practices i would say that the big thing that has happened and that has actually sort of changed the substance of what journalists do um, is that to some extent to some extent most journalists today have to like care more or have more direct interaction with the audience than they used to uh, that's a big change and also a sort of a work task that has been added to the sort of average journalist's working day. I mean, besides having to sort of learn to produce across multiple delivery platforms, is that today most journalists also in some way they have to themselves engage in the marketing of their content, like by by posting on like Twitter or on social media about what they do, um, which is, I think is perhaps like the 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 biggest these two things like more contact with the audience and that you have to be more actively engaged in marketing your own content i think are the two biggest substantial changes in journalistic practice because it was always the case that journalists in fact they were they were kept at arm's length from the audience like of course newspapers uh, you know they did audience surveys but it was even like considered to be the job of the editor like to not tell journalists about this you you shouldn't know how like how different articles were doing or what was read and what was not because you were meant to make your decisions on what was newsworthy uh just based on other things yeah based on like you know what was journalistic 
your journalistic gut feeling or your new sense or like what was good for the audience rather than what they wanted. So you, you know, journalists had kind of a constructed audience in mind, they, you know, like this won't play in Peora or, you know, in Sweden, it was like someone living in the Stockholm suburbs who was the sort of model listener, model reader. Um, whereas today, of course, in like any newsroom, all journalists get real-time data on how the news that they produce is doing. Like, is it getting, you know, is it getting read? Is it getting clicked? Uh, how much time do people spend on it? And you have like a uh, like a running top 10 or top 20 of, of the stories of the day. Uh, this is broadcast like on often on on big screens in the newsroom so that everybody can see it uh, which of course you know adds a, a dimension of surveillance to the to the workplace uh, and it's it's also visible on everybody's screen when they're working sometimes news organizations even send out several times daily like email blast like <laughs> this kind of story is doing well now. Can we do a follow up on it? Can we like get something else? Can you add something to this? Um, that I think is a is a is a big change that has sort of changed the the substance. Sometimes more than journalists care to admit, <laughs> uh, but that you get this kind of real time metrics, real time audience feedback. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So they have to, so that that below the line work that they mm -hmm. now have to do, yeah. and that response to the audience in that way. I suppose they're even able to tell how far down their article someone has read before <laughs> switching to something else and things yeah. like that. So, it, so have they begun to internalize very much those uh, those pressures? That sounds a very kind of stressful. Um, working practice in that regard. Yeah. Um, actually, also one thing that I've found in my research in like multiple research projects across the years is that journalists tend to internalize these things very rapidly. Like it just, it something goes from being like, this is completely alien, we shouldn't do this, to, this is just how we've always done things. I've seen that on like multiple occasions and in multiple different contexts. Like for example, when, you know, 10, say 15 years ago, when sort of multi-platform production and like, so, you know, convergence was, was like getting started and you you had like the, the online news, the online division of the newspaper and like the print division and it was very much that all these like newfangled things like blogging or producing like an online video or like an online text or that you had to do search engine optimization in the headlines and so on. Like when you studied then you did like, you know, snapshot studies uh, and there was like a lot of a lot of resistance. Like, you know, this was like not compatible with many journalistic norms and like ethical guidelines and so on um, and I think there's been a lot of these what I would say like snapshot studies where 
like scholars look at like the introduction of this technology or that technology and now it's and it could even be down to like you know the introduction of a particular app like like whatsapp or periscope or something like that and they always find the same thing which is that like some journalists resist it and some sort of embrace it but what i think those kind of snapshot studies miss um compared to like a more long-term perspective if you look at like all these snapshot studies after each other you can see well sort of by the time people are having a debate about whatsapp then multi-platform production is completely routinized and like internalized that this is just how you do things now so so yes i think that that what we're seeing now is that journalists are also very rapidly like adapting to or internalizing that this kind of real-time data audience metrics that's just how it is now that's just you have to like pick stories and write stuff with that in mind and it's but i have to stress that it's not like a rapid change of values it's more that you have to, you like you know you adapt your practices and values just a little bit <laughs> so that you can like handle doing it or you sort of make it so or you argue that this was actually always in line with professional values and so on i mean there are there are there are many many examples of this i mean i have an i have like a a concrete example um from actually a call a former phd student of mine uh, uh melanie buns brilliant student does great work so i'm just plugging her a little bit but she uh studied the the reuters newsroom in nairobi kenya at around the time when reuters was being bought up by thomson's uh, so there was like a a kind of structural change and before that you know reuters is a very old organization it's like you know linked to the emergence of the british empire uh they they always had a very let's say kind of like a worthy policy that we you know reuters we should bring you the news that are like important to understand the world and sort of jokingly within the organization like that met you know like disasters and like and you know political upheaval and that kind of stuff but like a very serious almost like public service like commitment to providing important news and then during the course of this organizational change when they get taken over by thomson uh thomson and the new management decides that like right now reuters tagline should be news that move markets yeah so news that are important to understand the changing business world and like that might have a market impact and she was there like over the course of a year and at the beginning of the year like everybody's up in arms and think this is a crazy change and by the end of the year all the journalists are like looking right does this move markets and and it's like in a year they forgot <laughs> that 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 it used to be something different uh, the people who like really did understand they they left <laughs> or they didn't want to be there anymore or were let go um so going back to what i said like the the biggest change is perhaps that there's in journalism is that there's fewer people doing it and this kind of volatility it volatility also means that it's it's like quite quite easy for 
management to affect sort of big changes in organizational culture pretty quickly. Because basically, like every year or every other year, you have to get rid of 30% of your staff anyway. Uh, so that was it was very striking in her empirical work how quickly it went from being something we won't consider doing which this is a stupid idea to write does this move markets this is how we do things now or this this is like almost it's always been like this yeah well it, it sort of fits the image we have of of journalists i mean they seem the notion of a of a scoop and and sure. speed and uh, rushing yeah. to mm -hmm. locations, etc. Uh, so the idea that uh, they have a technological um, uh, underpinning to that, so the faster they get information uh, via these things is going to help them in that process, I suppose, fits with that. Um, technology in that sense, of course, as you, as you referred to then, it, uh, has fundamentally changed uh, production circulation there is or there was a sense very much in the 90s one of the things and, and through the 2000s that uh, in one sense there was sort of a democratization of the process sure yeah um mm -hmm. that uh control and the the strictures of the, mm -hmm. the traditional yeah. pr print media yeah which uh, as you say had the kind of perhaps higher status but in, in many ways, people talk today about journalism being in crisis and mm -hmm. um, facing very severe challenges. So what's the, how do those two things come together then? Why, you know, why is the, this process of potentially opening up uh, journalism and the greater involvement mm -hmm. of the audience mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and self-production in different ways and so on, why does that pose some kind of threat oh yeah oh uh, there's so many things that i could say about this i mean you're really getting at all the like fundamental issues in journalism studies which incidentally the one of the problems of the field that i'm in is that i think that the is that the fundamental issues of journalism as a business also becomes the fundamental issues of scholarship like whatever journalists or the media industry cares about at the moment is also what we research because there's so many people in this field who are like former journalists uh, that wasn't a question but just as a sort of a, as an aside um, yeah why why is it that this sort of audience involvement interaction is like seen as a as a as a threat um, well first of all when you talk about a, a, a crisis in journalism it is all very much bound up with the sort of crisis in the sort of traditional funding model. I mean, that's when when most people who are in the industry talk about the crisis. That's what they talk about, that you don't like make any money doing this anymore. And it, as it turns out, making news costs a lot. Um, and from there, everything else follows in a way. But like, you know, the people who are the movers and shakers in the media industry, of course, that's what they care about. That's what they think about. Uh, but as many scholars, uh, particularly, uh, for example, Matt Carlson at the University of Minnesota has written a lot about this, the, the challenges also to journalistic kind of authority and, and legit legitimacy um, that you know, 
when we had a media landscape that was characterized by by scarcity and sort of virtual monopolies, local and national, like you have you have broadcasting. Uh, broadcasting is a or used to be a technology that was a, you need like a big infrastructural investment. It was sort of natural that that kind of industry like that it either became kind of like a government monopoly, like in the countries that had public service broadcasting, or an oligopolistic structure with like a few dominant commercial actors like you had in the have in the US, like big companies, they're the ones who can afford it. Yeah. Same with like newspapers. They also it also requires like a big initial investment to like buy the printing presses, you know, get the the newsroom, the building, sort out the distribution, hire people, and so on. So when you you had that, that that kind of journalism, that kind of context was really journalism as mass communication in a sort of very traditional sense of the world from like a, a centralized, well-resourced sender <laughs> to many receivers. And there weren't that many alternatives you know when you at that like in the 90s and before that when you talked about alternative media what you meant was people like photocopying fanzines and that kind of thing yeah um, but now and then obviously journalism could speak with a much greater authority like you know the the voice of the BBC newsreader was the voice of God. That's where the news came from and it spoke to the entire nation. And even in a local context, like there was one local paper that had a local monopoly on advertising and therefore like effectively a local monopoly on deciding what was news, what was relevant. You couldn't like really get news <laughs> from, from anywhere else. Um, and so and I think obviously like that's why it's threatening. Yeah, that <laughs> because one thing uh, that we must remember when we talk about sort of developments in journalism, which is something that is not done very often, which is to compare it with other sectors of society. Um, that journalism is not the first profession, the first institution to be changed by technology, like, you know, architecture was entirely transformed in the 80s due to the introduction of like CAD CAM, like electronic design technology, um, you know, nursing and the medical profession today is changed because people can get information about symptoms and illnesses online. Uh, a lot of professions historically have had to deal with the introduction of new technologies. Uh, a lot of industries have also had to deal with like a changing business environment, like falling profits. And the reason that I'm saying this and coming back to this issue of like the, the authority of journalism, that first of all, newspapers in particular used to be profitable. They used to be extremely profitable. A newspaper was like a license to print money. You had like net profit margins of like 25% and up. And if you know anything about business, you could like 
if you have retail or if you have a restaurant, you'd like give your right arm to have a net profit margin of like 3%. That would be like widely successful. Like they, <laughs> so when like they say that journalism is in crisis now, you know, it's in a way, it's like an extremely privileged and extremely rich institution uh, that is now having to deal with the same stuff as everybody else. <laughs> and and also this kind of legitimacy or authority that came with like, you know, being the national public service broadcaster or being the national news agency or the national newspaper of record. And now, I mean, for those institutions, it must really feel like a culture, like an, an organizational identity crisis that people can like, e you know, you know, even the introduction of like one rival voice would be like a big deal. So, you know, from such a great hate, uh, what the fall to like to to quote you quoted Arthur Miller. So I'm I'm countering with some Milton and Paradise Lost there. <laughs> I mean, another way of describing that would be uh, a monopoly. Yeah. Um, the question of authority. Uh, also relates to status uh, in the past with those traditional uh, news production organizations uh, becoming a journalist was quite hard yeah um, uh, it, it was, was difficult for uh, certain people and certain identities to even get into yeah. that profession Absolutely. in that way yeah so um, so I come back to this question really of, of sort of, of of the sort of democratization really yeah. that um, it's a complex idea because it's not yeah. simply a monopoly and that's necessarily, as you say, universally bad. No, but, um, no. I, I just wonder if um, if there is something in 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 that sense. Then what what is the uh, what is the positive side to this process? Yeah, the, the absolutely. Um, uh, because I was I was just going to continue on that on that track because you 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 used the word democratization before as well, uh, and of course what we're seeing now, you know like uh, uh, you know more voices like 10 million troll bots is that more democratic you know <laughs> like like democracy or democratization is not necessarily a matter of just a number of voices yeah uh, i think you can clearly see that a positive consequence has been that voices that were previously marginalized like like the voices of women, like, you know, like gender discrimination in the newsroom is like a quite a well-researched and well-established issue. Um, ethnic minorities, like there's still in in the Western world, in Sweden, in the US, and in the UK, most newsrooms are like still majority white, right? It's like a big discussion about that, particularly in the US, given the, the current political context. Um, but what has happened was that these kind of previously marginalized groups, they they can actually now talk back and like question this kind of old authority and and 
you know, how they are reported about. They, they have more definitional power over how they're covered. I would say that, um, you know, m- make no mistake, like the, the, the authority of like traditional legacy mass media is still quite significant. You know, if there's like a, a big event or something going on, that's, you know, that's where people go. They don't go to like Joe Blogger or whatever. They go to the BBC, to SVT, to Dagens Nyheter. So, so uh, again, like, like they've, when we say that these kind of legacy media have seen an erosion of their, their, their power, their authority, we have to remember that they start from a very high level, right? So, the, the, so they're still quite authoritative. Um, anyway, so, so, but that's clearly a positive thing that you can like you can like challenge this kind of mainstream and you you can have these sort of marginalized groups have more of a voice Uh, of course unfortunately and this is also why you know i think democratization is not necessarily like a good blanket term for 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 two reasons first you know it's not just the groups that we think are like nice and like <laughs> that get this kind of voice. You know, like the far right was also a marginalized group. It's just that most of us agree that they were marginalized for a good reason. <laughs> uh, but they clearly also now has they have the ability to like, you know, formulate their own definitions of media to critique the mass media and to like, you know, sometimes even like, you know, they, they like harass <laughs> the mainstream media. So that's one reason that uh, that this might not be like a, a kind of a net democratic positive. Uh, the other reason was that, you know, uh, you know, I and other scholars might be very critical of how journalism sort of used this authority, you know, as you know, that it was, you know, of course, it was very much like a kind of like, you know, white male middle class consensus, quite a sort of a, a, uh, I mentioned Reuters and its role in the British Empire, you know, in some countries, like almost like kind of an imperial view of the rest of the world and so on. So you, you, there's good reason to be critical of that use of the authority. But it's also important to remember that like in the best case scenario, this authority was actually also backed up by quite sort of a strong commitment to professional principles, to like principles of verification, fact-checking, multiple sources that you knew that they're, they're, the news organizations felt that it was ne- it was kind of, if they had this authority, they also did have some kind of social responsibility to like do their job right. And like that you could like, you know, trust that most of the things that was written in the paper was like actually true. Do you see what I mean? Like we might argue about love sort of perspectives and representations, but there weren't outright lies, <laughs> uh, you know. And I think that, you know, there's lots of talk about like bias and elitism. But I mean, I think, you know, you can still trust the New York Times. Like the New York Times is like committed to following these principles of verifications. And you can, you can, you can certainly trust them more than Breitbart, more than Avpixlat, and you know, um, 
So uh, with that loss of authority, it's also kind of a loss of commitment to these in the, the good side of these professional values, kind of a, a, a kind of almost like a, a commitment to kind of like a craft skill in, in how you craft or build or put together journalism. Uh, it makes me think, though, that, um, as you say, there is uh, there's, there's a clear sense that, say, from uh, uh, the right, there is uh, an interest to undermine certain yeah. positions mm-hmm. to um, um, perhaps create space for their ideas. But there's also a sense that on the left, I mean, I think of the UK... Uh, I think of the recent election. I also think back a couple of years to the uh, the Grenfell disaster, which was mm-hmm. the yeah, tower block sure. yeah. that was on fire with yes. many people died. And uh, journalists from the BBC and the Sky would go to those places, and there was a there was a deep resentment yeah. against mm-hmm. the journalists. Yeah. Sure, the recent election. I mean, there was a particular BBC journalist mm-hmm. who has to have security protecting her to go sure. to party conferences yeah. and things. Mm-hmm. So. There, it also cuts into the, this question of authority. Also cuts into that, um, yes. The that maybe the middle ground there was very well covered, but yeah. m- um, mar- marginalisation goes across the spectrum and in, and in all sorts of different directions. So, in that sense, today then uh, this this questioning of the authority, I think, mm-hmm. operates across the board why yeah. is that why is that do you think in that regard well i mean first of all like the questioning of of traditional authorities is something that goes on like across all sectors of society and that affects all institutions really um and it this is like a, a a well-known sociological phenomenon and like a matter of like basic social theory that we've gone like let's not say in the past decade but over the past hundred years towards sort of a more individualistic society where we as a rule are more suspicious of all kinds of traditional authorities be you know they everything is more open to to questioning now you know, it started with, I guess, like, you know, questioning absolute monarchic power and then questioning religion and then, you know, also like questioning experts. Like in like in, in science and technology studies, they sort of see that this started happening in like the 70s and 80s with the rise of the, the sort of environmental or the green movement that they didn't trust the sort of scientific experts who said that everything was fine. Do you see what I mean? Like, the, uh, so this is this is, I think, part of it's sort of difficult to answer. It's part of a, a long-term social trend. Trend, but we're also we're journalists for some of the reasons that you say and that we've already talked about. That they were seen as like part of a social elite, rather than the the kind of disinterested observers that they perhaps themselves would like to be viewed as but you know it took a certain amount of like education to was difficult to get into journalism interestingly what you see 
historically it's it's almost that it's uh, it's actually become sort of more middle classified in journalism like again if you if you go back like 100 150 years back to the 19th century with sort of the rise of the mass press one of the things that made sort of journalism an attractive career for like sort of working class people or rural people was that there was no guild there were no formal barriers to entry like some of the sort of most famous reporters and journalists in history had kind of a working class or non-traditional background like like William Howard Russell from Ireland who was the sort of the the he was called the first war correspondent he reported on the Crimean war for for the times um you know he he did not come from like a traditional sort of like upper class Oxbridge background and they're uh, uh, like like anybody could like break into <laughs> journalism if you will because it's always been a field where the sort of the the labor supply exceeds the the demand right um, but you know over the years as journalism became more professionalized that you sort of needed like a university education it also became you know, in a way more exclusionary, more like that the, the the other social mechanisms were such that it became sort of more difficult to break in if you were if you were a woman, if you were a person of color, if you came from like a different class background. And that of course is, you know, reflected uh, today also. Like today you can really see that intensifying um, like for example, we see a shift now that most newspapers in particular realized that, you know, it, it used to be that that advertising was the Im most important source of income, right? Um, so there was this whole argument many years ago that, you know, you're in the like pocket of advertisers and you have to meet advertiser interests, but there were also, like you also got money from subscriptions, right? Uh, um, and then what has happened was that first when sort of the internet started happening like newspapers started chasing uh online advertising which gave rise to this whole like real-time metrics thing and like clickbait and and that kind of thing but now we're seeing that you know the the money is so small it's like a fraction of like other advertising so you now see most newspapers actually if they can they are trying to move to like a subscription logic again that you that they they close the 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 open web pages they they start paywalls you you or you have to be a member to get the content or to get the premium content it's more important to have like loyal customers so you you see that shift sort of back to a subscription model and and here we go back to what you were asking about that uh, for the newspapers that are successful which are the the sort of the big elite newspapers like you know the the new york times is rather than the washington post their and the guardian are um, you know they're successful in getting loyal customers i mean the guardian has a different model they have a donation model but uh, um, but but who is it that what's the audience now who is it that can afford to get this subscription or wants to get this subscription well you've not only seen a middle classification of journalists you see a middle classification classification of 
the audience as well, particularly for traditional, like let's say, elite hard news, polit- political news, foreign news, and you know, you know, you can see this and in D and Dagens Nyheter also in Sweden, like you know, reporting about issues that are really, if you want to be like a bit glib about it, that are that are specific to Söder in Stockholm, as if they were national issues. Um, and and sort of presenting news in that way like you know that there are like newspapers now are writing about the coronavirus as if you know can i go on my holiday to thailand like th- that's if pardon my friends that's like a shitty angle like that's <laughs> that's not a good journalistic angle on like a potentially global pandemic yeah that is also incidentally that that has also created like an epidemic of racism <laughs> uh, towards Asian people. Yeah, like they're like, you know, literally presented as spreaders of disease and so on. That's a much more important news angle than, you know, is it safe to go on holiday in Asia? <laughs> but to me, that's just so typical of this. Well, that's what's interesting. That's what's interesting to this kind of like comfortable sort of urban, upper income, high education audience. I think the issue, the issue there of health and health reporting, is an important one, um, and it, it connects to then uh, I think to, to certain other ideas as well. I, I mean, I remember. I think it must have been back in the late nineties the first reports in the mainstream media of the theory, shall we mm. say at that time, that the uh, vaccination of, of children was leading to autism. Uh, oh yeah. And, mm. and uh, of course that was, uh, and that was, and that was based on a article, I think published in the, in the Lancet or yes. something yeah, by, Lancet. By, yeah. by the Dr. Wakefield at the time. Um, and of course, you know, through that period, then since then, the rise of social media and um, those technologies where mm. today now we have significant health problems. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in one sense, they came into existence th- precisely through the mainstream media in that regard. Yeah. So there is a kind of paradox there, yeah. I think, of... Um, how to report, but then there is a kind of way in which the media itself operates as a sort of virus <laughs> process, a virology at work there. But so in that sense, my question would then be, um, what has been the impact of social media, of, of Facebook and things like this on uh, the on journalists and, and the mainstream media's um, uh, practice of, of covering these things? Well, it's a multifaceted question, of course. Like, I mean, just as you sort of hint at, it's very easy to, like, blame Facebook and social media for everything. I mean, what you're pointing out was that this the the beginning of the sort of anti-vaccine movement was actually by the was caused by the mainstream media and there's a 
there's a couple of great studies about this, but that, you know, I mean, specifically in Britain, it was the Daily Mail actually that picked up uh, this kind of MMR linked to autism thing essentially because they wanted to stick it to the labor government. Like it was, you know, like you can see that, you know, they, uh, <laughs> the same owner that owns the Daily Mail also owned like a tabloid in Ireland where this wasn't the same issue. And you can see, you can compare the headlines like on the same day where like the Daily Mail says that, you know, people should, you shouldn't vaccinate your kids. Whereas the Irish paper, same owner says that you should vaccinate your kids. Like it was just literally like a thing that they latched onto because it was possible to like capitalize on this kind of lack of trust in kind of like a societal elite. Yeah. So this, you know, and that worked you know, sadly, it worked extraordinarily well, even without Facebook and social media. So again, the sort of power of the legacy media is still great. I mean, you know, I think that the research that we see coming out now about like, you know, fake news, political propaganda, trying to swing elections, that 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 actually like, uh, you know, the people like who are like who are you sort of you're you're afraid that the swing voters yeah like the low information voters like they they don't get their information about from facebook anyway because they're like not on facebook they're not on social media they're on the legacy channels they in the us they like watch fox news or the or the bbc or whatever yeah uh, so the sort of the most like if you will like impressionable people or the people that you can whose opinion you can change they don't have social media as their sort of main information source. They have traditional media as their main information source. Um, uh, but I mean, specifically, not so much about journalism, but what you were talking about, how this has changed, is that, of course, um, you know, these groups, like the anti-vaccine groups and, and like other like political groups, uh, they were marginalized in their respective countries. <laughs> but now, marge thanks to social media, I think that's the big thing, you can like form communities across national borders. And then all of a sudden, like this marginalized group in Britain, this marginalized group in France, this marginalized group in the US, if you put them together, they're all of a sudden, they're not so marginalized anymore. Yeah, and 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 that is what you can see now, that sort of the, the anti-vaccine movement and like various other things have gone global, right? Yeah, so that's that's what social media or that's what the internet does in a way that it creates kind of a a global community in that sense where even like you know small communities can become bigger, which is you know not you know but you know it's good and bad, right? But that's. Uh, uh, but that's in a more general sense. But how it has affected journalism, I would say that this is like this is like directly linked to what we started talking about. That this like increased um, contact with the audience, the increased sort of need to like market your own content actively to like build engagement, whatever that means. Is that of course journalists today they use social media as a news source. Yeah, like what are people talking about on social media? Like, 
I sometimes tell students like in this like as a joke that if 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 I could like forbid or outlaw journalists from doing like one thing <laughs> I would like I would like make it illegal and again this is a joke uh, <laughs> uh, I would make it illegal for journalists to like have something happens and then they write in the article well and the reactions on social media were strong and then they like quote someone whoever on Twitter or Facebook like that's not you know as as if that was equivalent equivalent with even going out and doing a vox pop you know you like you ask people in the street what do they think about these things because on social media that the, the reaction on social media is not representative of anything it's like so incredibly easily manipulated it can be created by a very very small number of people and still look massive it could be created by bots and algorithms for all we know yet journalists treat this as some kind of reflection of public opinion which it like really isn't <laughs> so that's so and rant <laughs> I, I'll I'll stop there, but that's yeah, that's indeed. certainly like a change in in practice. That it's 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 very quickly become like an accepted journalistic norm to like just think of Twitter or Facebook as real life when it clearly isn't. I suppose it's a the idea of being working inside a a certain kind of bubble where those things are yeah. are pushed uh, becomes important in that way. I want to finish then with. Uh, Quite an important question, really. You said in a, a recent publication, uh, journalism needs to turn its considerable symbolic resources to addressing the problem of no. inequality oh, yeah. and mm -hmm. making this the focal issue of all reporting. So I wonder how does that fit with important ideas and the role of journalists as, as, as those who report rather than comment in that regard because that seems quite a, um, a pointed shift in notion of a journalist. Yeah, sure, a couple of points. First, I'm glad that you read that piece. Almost no one else has like read that piece and I sort of, it was uh, just for context, it was part of a, a special issue on the 20th anniversary of an academic journal where scholars were invited to like give just very short, like three page provocative assessments on what the most important sort of challenge facing journalism today. And then my point there was that the, the, the piece is titled Journalism Cannot Solve Journalism's Problems. Like there's a, a widespread notion within journalism that basically if we could just write about things in the right way, audiences will come back. You know, we need to address this group or that group or we need to take this perspective or that perspective. But a lot of the things that we've been talking about, sort of polarization, marginalization, like polarization between rural and urban areas, that there's like a lot of rural areas across the world, they don't have any media coverage anymore at all because the local newspaper has closed and so on. It's like, sadly, it's not within the power of journalism to do anything about these massive social trends. Like that's, <laughs> journalism cannot make people like move back to rural areas where there's no employment and therefore like no audience for journalism. The journalism 
cannot do very much about the rising income inequality that makes it possible for some people to pay for news and other people can't, right? It's, uh, it, in, in a way, you could create the perfect journalism and people might not buy, it might not be profitable anyway. It might not reach audience anyway. Polarization might continue anyway. And in that piece, I argue that underlying a lot of these things like the urban-rural divide, the middle classification of journalism, is in fact rising income inequality, which is again, which is like not an opinion. That's like social science. We see that in most Western countries. Uh, I, like uh, we, we both come from countries, Sweden and the UK, that have seen like extremely rapid rise in income inequality in just the past decade or two decades, uh, which then has a knock-on effect on all these things like media and audiences. And this is, this is something that journalists do not write about because it's a big sort of process-oriented social issue that is difficult to see, even though you can see the effects of it everywhere, in schools, in healthcare. So uh, basically, I think I, I'm not necessarily asking journalists to be advocates. I'm asking them to cover one of the key social issues of our time as news, which it is. It's, it's like a really, really important social process that journalists do not cover. And that again, that is, it's well established in social science, in economics, that this is going on and that income inequality also has like a lot of other negative social effects. Yeah. Uh, so I think so. So that's what I'm saying. You know, you, you don't have to be an, you don't have to be an advocate. You just have to report on what's out there. Well, I think there's uh, a lot of complex issues there, and I think uh, we both agree that journalism and the the role of uh, the dissemination of that kind of information is very important to our sense of democracy and things like this. So, absolutely, I think uh, you know this is uh, these are all areas that we'll continue to think about. But for today, thank you very much. Thank you, John. <laughs>